The title that I have could be said two ways. One is your part in God's master plan of spiritual creation, which is the Festival of Unleavened Bread's picture. But it could also have been worded a different way, which is do your part in God's master plan of spiritual creation. The biblical festival of unleavened bread follows immediately after the biblical festival of the Passover. The 14th day leads to the 15th day. When the day that is the Passover ends, the sun goes down, that is also the beginning of the first day of unleavened bread. And we kept that last night, many of us, by having a meal together. That nanosecond that the Passover ends at sundown, the first day of unleavened bread begins. And perhaps, perhaps this is a way to tell us that the meaning of these two steps, these two holy days, the meaning of these two days is very closely related. The spiritual meaning of both festivals are indeed closely related. We've got these two festivals, and what do they mean? Well, the Passover is about a sacrifice to pay for sin. And what Christ does, and he does something we can't do. And unleavened bread is about putting out sin, and it is about Christ helping us to succeed. So step one, Jesus' sacrifice makes possible forgiveness of sin and provides atonement for it. He who was God, is God, came in the flesh to do for us what we could not and cannot do for ourselves. Only he could do it. Step two, after Passover, immediately following, hot on the heels of the Passover, comes the Festival of Unleavened Bread, which tells us about the contribution that we must make towards God's great purpose for us. And, and it points to the help that God extends to us through the living, risen Christ. My purpose today is to explore both of these aspects of the festival of unleavened bread. I'll do that by looking at the two parts. Part one, we must forsake sin. You'll understand what the picture is about in a minute. It actually makes sense. It looks kind of odd, but yeah, you'll, you'll get it. Okay, so we must forsake sin. All right. We are saved by the gracious favor and goodwill of God. An intervention, if you will. But since we are saved, does that mean we can just sit back and relax? Sip a spiritual pina colada on the beach? No, it does not. Worse yet, that we disregard the moral instruction found in God's law? The answer is no. That is not how we follow up on the wonder of what God has done for us at the Passover. Go to Romans 3, verse 31. Romans 3, verse 31. Uh, you know, I bring this one up an awful lot. The very important verse says, Do we, do we then nullify the law by this faith that we have? 
No, not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. After we are redeemed, we must leave sin. And this is, this is the picture that's built into the first unleavened bread festival. Israel was led out of Egypt. They were led out of what God said was a fiery furnace. It was a very unpleasant situation. They were in bondage. A fiery furnace. That's how he described Egypt. And he was, Yahweh led them out. He led them out of bondage. And that's what we were thinking about last night. If we were spiritually on point, that's what we should have been thinking about last night, a night of vigil when God brought his people out of that fiery furnace. And he did it through a miraculous display of his might and his power. Now, under the new covenant, we are redeemed from bondage through Christ. You know, if you know your, if you know your uh, theology well, you know there's not a whole lot of difference between those two statements. But we are, under the new covenant, we are redeemed from the bondage of sin through Christ. Yet though we are redeemed, we are still warned. Even though we've done this, we are still warned. We are still warned, come out of her, my people. And that is a warning that God extends to us. Come out of her, my people, and do not share in their sins. It's all around you. You see it. It can soak into your very pores. Do not be part of it so that you can escape the punishment that comes from that. So there's a lot of spiritual growth and development still out there for us to do, for to us to accomplish, even though so much has been accomplished through the Passover, there is more work to be done. There is more spiritual development to be done. People don't like that word work. There's more spiritual development to be done. The nature of what God expects from us, the guidelines that we have for this spiritual development, what God is expecting for those who have been redeemed, for those who have gone through the Passover, for those who have been redeemed, the pattern for us begins with the commandments. Where do we go from redemption? We go to the commandments. Now, go to Deuteronomy 4. And we're going to take a look at these, you know, what, what Moses had to say in what I'm going to call a preamble to the second reading of the commandments. Before the commandments were read the second time in Deuteronomy 5, Moses spends the, he spends the whole chapter 4 of Deuteronomy basically laying out the reasons why this is so important. Um, let me just take a look at some highlights from chapter 4. Uh, verses 1 through 2. Now, Israel, and I think we could put in there, my people, you know, O church, hear the decrees and laws that I am about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live and may go in and take possession of the land the Lord, the God of your ancestors, is giving you. And do not add to what I command and do not subtract from it. But keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you. Take a look at verse 20. 
But as for you, the Lord took you and brought you out of the iron smelting furnace, out of Egypt, to be the people of his inheritance, and as you now are. Drop down to verse 44. This is the law Moses set before Israel. These are the stipulations, decrees, and laws Moses gave them when they came out of Egypt. So the people that have been redeemed, the people who have been brought out of Egypt, who have been brought out of sin, what does God do for them next? He gives them his law. He gives them a pattern. He gives them guidelines. The proper response to God's deliverance is obedience. That's what God is looking for from us. When you've been redeemed, it's so that you might obey. These two concepts flow together. As I was trying to draw out by the timing of Passover and unleavened bread. There's no, they're seamless. There is no time between the two. To keep us mindful of our necessary follow-up, the immediate follow-up, to our personal forgiveness and redemption, which is embedded in the Passover, to keep us mindful of what needs to come immediately after that, God has given us the festival of unleavened bread. Now that's where we're at right now. We are beginning, we have begun the festival of unleavened bread. And each of these two days, the Passover and then the unleavened bread seven-day festival that follows, is a separate and unique step in God's process. They're not the same thing, but they flow together. They flow together, and there's no pause or break between the two. Redemption, the, the proper response to God's redemption, his deliverance, his forgiveness, is obedience. Not pina coladas on the beach of life. Now, prominently built into the seven days of unleavened bread is a powerful, clear symbol of sin. And that is the common household ingredient of leaven. And you know this because you've gone through this process. You've uh, done the physical exercise of getting leaven out of your house. And, you know, when you do that, you realize how common it is and how it's all over the place, you know. And, you know, there's always a funny story. And this year I've, I was vacuuming in the car and I found these, all these Laura's stash of crackers. Uh, <laughs> I actually, they might have been mine. Um, but anyways, they were under the seat, you know, and I had actually been cleaning the car. And I thought, you know, it's a new car. I just bought this car. Uh, there's nothing under the seat. You know what I'm talking about? Like, uh, I don't know. I'm kind of tired. i got other things to do. Do I really need to vacuum under it? Oh, I'll do it anyway. <laughs> it's, so, it's everywhere. It is everywhere. And uh, it is a big part of our lives. It is a very big part of our lives. So we're commanded to put it out of our homes and not put it into our mouths for an entire seven days. The entire seven-day festival. And that's a reminder, it's a reminder that after deliverance, that deliverance that we looked at so closely and carefully at Passover, it's a reminder that after that deliverance, we are to be actively engaged in putting sin out of our life and putting Christ into our life. Twofold, twofold. 
as I brought up in that previous slide. If you were to observe the Passover and then not follow up with the Days of Unleavened Bread, and some people do just this, now they'll keep the Passover, and they get that, they can see it very clearly, and then, no, we're not going to do the Days of Unleavened Bread. Well, to observe the Passover and then not observe the Days of Unleavened Bread is, is, is comparable to accepting Christ's sacrifice and then neglecting to exert any effort in overcoming sin. Because that's the picture that they present. And it's a confusing picture. Go with me to Galatians 2, verse 17. We are not in confusion. And I think that part of why we're not in confusion is because God's holy days have spelled out the process for us. And it's good to know and it's good to have. Galatians 2, verse 17. Paul, writing, says, Okay, so, if in seeking to be justified in Christ, right, that, you know, justification we get through Passover, we find ourselves also sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? You're reading the King James, it says that he's a minister of sin. No, 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 no. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I would really be a lawbreaker. That word, minister of sin, or as I read in the NIV, promoter of sin, is diakonos, deacon, minister, servant, one who serves the purpose of. The definition is just that, one who serves the purpose of X. So does Christ do all this to serve the purpose of making sin okay? Absolutely not, is what Paul says. Go to 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 7. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7 says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Yeah, okay, so that's the Passover. You know, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, that's another way of saying, as a result thereof, you know, moving right along, Christ is our Passover, Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What he's saying is because Christ has done this for us, he's our Passover lamb, and he's done this redemptive work for us, Therefore, let us move on. And the proper response to this deliverance is obedience. And all the encouragement and peace that we receive at the Passover, and I hope that your Passover had that element in it, all that peace, that sense of reconciliation, the renewal of that uh, emotional aspect of, of where we are in God's plan, uh, is meant to be followed up on. And... We follow up on it by deleavening our lives. You know, I mean, look, most of us probably had most of our deleavening done before we went to the Passover service. But if you're like us, uh, Laura usually makes sure that we have a final sweep, you know, <laughs> final sweep. And you just make sure, okay, it's all done, it's all taken care of. So, you know, it is a longer process, the prep 
or days of unleavened bread. But then we have the ongoing work during this week of avoiding eating leavened bread and eating unleavened bread, you know. I, I, I'm hoping that we are able to go out and uh, share a meal with, with some of you this evening. And uh, if we do, and I hope we do, if someone is willing to go with us, uh, they'll probably ask us if we want bread, you know. And a lot of times you go to a restaurant and you're really looking forward to that bread because some of these restaurants have really nice bread, you know. And they put down that nice steaming basket of bread and they give you the butter and you're like, oh, I'm so hungry. And you're, I don't know if you've ever done this before, but sometimes you're not thinking. I've done it. You know, I'm sure people have funny stories about that. You, you're used to taking it. You, you're used to eating a donut at work, and you show up, and you just kind of reach for the donut that you always have on Friday morning or whatever. And, ah, and you stop. Because it's there. You have to have ongoing work to keep your life deleavened. Now, Leviticus 23, I want to go there next. And just to just kind of hammer this point home is... Uh, take a look at verses 5 and 6. It says, The Lord's Passover begins at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. And on the 15th day of that month, the Lord's Festival of Unleavened Bread begins. For seven days you must eat bread made without yeast. Again, there is no time between the two holy days. They are right up against each other. There's no intervening time between them. They flow together. Now, I've stressed the meaning of the Days of Unleavened Bread as the part that we must play in God's plan. The proper response to God's deliverance is obedience, which begins with the knowledge and understanding of His commandments. Of course, it goes on to more than that. Uh, but does that mean that, that, that Christ has no further part to play after His atoning death? You know, does He die and then it's all up to us? No, 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 not at all. Christ is very involved in the days of unleavened bread. The second aspect that I would like to look at is the life and work of the resurrected Christ. Jesus was put to death. Another one of the things that we, we think of at the Passover he was put to death. And after he spent three days and three nights in the grave, he was resurrected. And after he was resurrected, he ascended to the throne of the Father to present himself to the Father. And all that happened during the Days of Unleavened Bread. These are part of the meaning of the Days of Unleavened Bread. All these things happened during the Days of Unleavened Bread. So built into the festival is the message that Christ is not dead. Not at all. It is not all about Christ dying, and that picture that we have of him, you know, hanging on a tree, or I hope you don't have a picture in your home, but you know what I mean, mental image. Uh, he is not dead, he is alive. That's part of the message of the Days of Unleavened Bread. He is alive. And he is actively working on your behalf. As your high priest. To help you put the leaven of sin out of your life. And to help you put the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth into your life. His assistance is essential. 
It is essential to your spiritual development. It is essential to moving you and me towards um, your own resurrection, your own day when you will rise up from physical death, a resurrection um, to spirit-born glory, a resurrection just like Jesus who's gone on before. Go to Romans 5, verse 10. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, how much more, and this is how these two concepts flow together, how much more have we been reconciled, we having been reconciled, shall be saved through his life. Read that again. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? His death is not about saving you. I don't know if you've thought about it that way. His death isn't about saving you. His death is about reconciling you to God. Which makes salvation possible. But the death itself is about reconciling you to God. Because of his death, you are no longer cut off from God because of sin. Through the acceptance of Jesus' death, you are brought into contact with God the Father, the supreme life of the universe, the one who holds the power to grant you the gift of eternal life. It's a pretty big deal to be reconciled to that entity, that supreme life in the universe. Sir sure is. Romans 6, probably just a page over for you. Romans 6, let's take a look at verses 3 and 4, which tell us this. Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead... Through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Christ is not a dead Savior. He is very much alive. You will be too. You will be too. Baptism. Baptism. A very important feature. A very, I mean, I don't know if you, this is so simple, mind-boggling. A very important of your baptism is that you come up out of the water. That should be painfully true. A very important, you go down into the water, but you come up out of the water. You don't stay down under the water. You know, the, the baptizer doesn't hold you down until you stop moving. <laughs> no. You come up out of the water. That's the joyful part of it. You don't stay down under the water until you drown. You rise up out of the watery grave. First Peter 3 and verse 21. And this... Water symbolizes baptism, 
that now saves you also. So he's talking about baptism here. And he says, it's not about the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. And it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. That's a very important aspect of baptism. It is not about dying. It's a picture of dying and rising up. And it says it saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Go to 1 Corinthians 15. And verse 17. Another scripture to kind of get this concept because I kind of, and I, I put it in a way that you might not be used to hearing it. Now that his, his death isn't about saving you, it's reconciling you. And these scriptures all kind of back that up. Okay? 1 Corinthians 5, verse 17 says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. To observe the Passover, but not follow up with the days of unleavened bread would be like being immersed in the water and never coming up. You'd be drowning in your own sins. Dead in your sin. But you do come up out of the water. You are raised up from that watery grave. That's a very, very important part of the whole process. And it's built into the Days of Unleavened Bread because Christ is risen during the Days of Unleavened Bread. Raised to a new life. And what is that new life all about? Overcoming sin. When you rise up, you're baptized and you rise up, it, your new life is, you got a, you got a mission, folks. It is to overcome sin. Your baptism isn't, uh, you know, you don't come up out of the water to eternal spirit-born life, do you? Unless you're hiding something from me. No, you've come up to a physical life, have you not? You were raised up, you went down, you died. You were baptized into Christ's death and you've been raised up. Clearly, what you have experienced through baptism is a resurrection to flesh and blood. Once again, you've been raised up. And everybody goes through this process. Everybody. You know, I'm going to kind of zip forward mentally to the, the, the fall holidays, last great day, if you will. Everyone will experience physical death in a state of sin. Everybody's going to go through that. Okay? After which, they will be raised back to life in the flesh. Everybody's going to go through that. Everybody's going to be resurrected to the flesh. And then what happens when they're raised? And you know, think about the last great day. What happens when people are raised back to physical flesh and blood life? An understanding of God's truth is opened up to them. Yeah. And they are granted access to God's Holy Spirit. Complete, you know, unrestricted access to God's spirit. They're given understanding. And then they're judged based on what they do with all this. Right? Now for most, most who've lived on this planet, that takes place at the resurrection of the rest of the dead. That time, you know, in Revelation 20 verses 5 and then 
verses 11 through 13. You can read about that. The resurrection of the rest of the dead, they're raised back to physical life. But for you, who are called and chosen, that's happening right now. And it began with your baptism. You died in the flesh in a state of sin. You were baptized into his death. You entered a watery grave. And you were raised to a new life, yet still in the flesh. You're still flesh and blood. And during this new life, you are to overcome sin. And you are given the tools to deal with it. God's word, God's spirit, and the help of Jesus Christ. And what matters is what you and I do once God's word is opened up to you. What matters is what you do once you are given that unrestricted access to God's Holy Spirit. Then God starts evaluating what's happening here. People without those two things, without the understanding, without God's word, they're, they're not in a process of judgment before God. They're on a different timeline, you know, if you want to put it that way. They're on a different timeline. Um, for us, that's happening now. And God expects you and me to, ex to exert personal effort in overcoming sin. That's what God is looking for. And this is the picture presented to us by the days of unleavened bread. They are very much about what is happening right here, right now in your life today and tomorrow and for the rest of your life. That is what the Days of Unleavened Bread are all about. But you don't go through the Days of Unleavened Bread all alone. You're not alone. The resurrected Jesus Christ is with you. And his resurrection is pictured by a special feature that is built into the seven-day festival. That special feature, and this is part of this seven-day festival. This is right in the midst of the festival. There's a wave sheaf offering, a wave sheaf offering, and it's built into the Days of Unleavened Bread. It's part of this festival. It is not a high day, but it's prominently built into the festival. We went through that when we went through Leviticus 23 together last time I was here. The wave sheaf offering is built into the Days of Unleavened Bread. It's a special ceremony just for us. You can find it. We went through it together. We're not going to go through it again today because we've done this already. But it's in Leviticus 23, verses 9 through 14, if you want to review it. What happens is a handful of barley, uh, which is the first of the spring crops to ripen. You know, the seeds that were planted in the fall, they grow over the winter and they, they are ready to harvest in the spring. And the first of those is barley. And a handful of barley is cut and it is waved before God by the high priest, meaning it is presented to God. Okay? And this presentation of the first of the very first of the first fruits must happen before any further harvesting is to happen. Okay? Before you eat of the rest of the harvest. And that's in there in Leviticus if you read it through. And so it was that Christ, if you go through the timing of what happened on that special event in history when Christ died, spent three days and three nights in the grave and rose up, the day that he rose up 
was the same day as the wave sheaf offering. And so it was. Christ was raised up on the day of the wave sheaf offering. That'd be the, it's the first day of the weekly cycle. It's not always the same. This one is a different configuration of how the days align. And he presented himself before the Father. And this happened at the same time the wave sheaf would have been offered by the high priest over in the temple a few couple of miles away. It would have happened in the same day. Go to John 20, verse 17. Now the uh, women who had followed Jesus, they were you know, among the disciples, were the first to go and, and find out, well, what happened? You know, they wanted to go to the tomb. Uh, they also wanted to do some, um, wanted to anoint the body with spices and stuff like that to give it a proper burial, if you will, because you know, Jesus was basically hastily hauled off from hanging up there on that tree and, you know, put in a tomb very quickly because the Holy Day was coming. You know, the Jews didn't want him hanging out there on the Holy Day. That, would, that wouldn't be cool. Now, we can kill him, but we want him off the cross before, before the Holy Day comes. So the women went out that morning, which would have been the first day of the week, and no one disputes that it was the first day of the week. They dispute when he was put to death. But no one disputes it's the first day of the week. That first day of the week, they went out. And, uh, you know, this is an interesting story. We're not going to go through it all. But let's just take a look at verse 17. Okay, so Jesus appears to Mary. And she didn't recognize him at first. And then he called her name, and, and he did. She did. She recognized him. And Jesus said to her, don't hold, don't hold on to me now. Don't cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. Very key wording of this. I have not ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. This ha had to happen before the next step in God's plan could happen before the harvesting of many more children could move forward. Like the, you know, harvesting of the crops that came after the barley. This had to happen. And Jesus presented himself to the Father. And would have done it on the same day as the wave sheaf offering. And it's part of the spring holy days. Now go to John 14, verse 19. And we'll take a look at verses 19 and 21. 21, uh, which say, and this is Jesus speaking to the disciples before his death, and he, he's telling them, this is, this is what's going to happen, guys. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, because I'll be dead. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And on that day you will realize that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. And whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father and I too will love them and show myself to them. Now, just jump over to chapter 16 because he's, he's basically talking through this whole sequence. If you've got a red letter Bible, it's just all red. This is Jesus speaking. We're going to jump forward to Chapter 16, verse 7, and he says to them, Truly I'm telling you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the Advocate, 
will not come to you. But if I go, I will send it to you. And when it comes, it will provide the world, or sorry, it will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. Jesus told them that it was necessary that he go. He had to go away. But that afterwards he would be with them. I will be with you. I'm going to be with you. And so he, he was put to death in the flesh. And after he told them all this stuff, he was put to death in the flesh. He was resurrected to the spirit. He was returned to the glorified state that he enjoyed with the Father before he was made flesh. And in that glorified state, he could be with them through the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you think about it, he couldn't be with them and in them when he was in the flesh. That's just not how the flesh works. The flesh is kind of limited to itself, you know? Much as you might think you know this person, you, you have a vast barrier between you and them. That's the flesh. But when he was raised, when he was glorified, he could be with them, and he could be with them in a way that wasn't even possible in the flesh. He could be in them through the power of the Holy Spirit. The ongoing work of Jesus Christ. Let's go to John, 1 John 1, verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, this is John speaking, he's writing to the church, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That purification, that cleansing of the conscience that we read about earlier. If we claim that we do not sin, we have no sin, then we may come out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Notice that the Apostle John says, we. We. He's throwing himself in there too. Okay, He says we when he's referring to the ongoing work of addressing sin in our lives. So this is, you know, an apostle. And what John is talking about is something that's common to all of us. He's talking about sins that crop up after baptism. And this too is pictured in the very first festival of unleavened bread. You like my picture? Those are supposed to be Egyptian soldiers. They are Egyptian soldiers in a painting. I wanted to avoid Yule Brenner, you know. So I, I got this one. <laughs> All right, so the Festival of Unleavened Bread, the first time it was recorded as being kept, the night that we talked about last night when we ate together, Israel began marching out of Egypt on the first day of the festival. And then after a very short while, and this would again be during the Days of Unleavened Bread, Pharaoh decided that he was going to saddle up and he was going to chase after them and bring them back to bondage. You know, what have I done? This is our main workforce. We need to get these people back. So he, they charged off and they went after them. So built into the seven-day festival is a picture of sin wanting you back. Now, for us today, you know, Egypt's not a factor. For now... Satan is who we're dealing with. 
I mean, he was around then, too. Don't get me wrong. But Satan is what we're dealing with. Satan remains the prince of the present age. And uh, he wants to bring you back into bondage. Very much so. And he's able to broadcast attitudes of disobedience and rebellion. And he can broadcast them into society at large. But he can also broadcast them to you. It can be right in your mind. And sometimes he gets you, me, to slip up and sin. And at that time, when those things happen, Christ is there to help you. Go with me to Romans 8, verse 33. Romans 8, verse 33 and 34. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns us? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, and more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So not only is he risen, he doesn't rise just to say, hey, I've done it. He's at work. And one of the things that he's doing is interceding for you when you need that. Go to Hebrews 7, verse 25. Let's take a look at the same concept by a different person chosen to write scripture by God. Hebrews 7, verse 25. Therefore he, speaking of Jesus, the risen Christ, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our needs, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. And unlike other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for the sins once for all when he offered himself. Notice, though, that he, intercession. He is there to intercede for you. Hebrews 4, verse 14. More along the same lines. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are yet did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now, one more on this line. You might not have thought I would go to this one, but I'm going to take you to Matthew 6, verse 12. When the disciples asked Jesus, can you, can you give us some instruction on prayer? Can you kind of show us how prayer is you know, meant to be done, how it's really effective. And he gave them what is commonly called the model prayer. And part of that prayer I would like to zoom in on is in uh, Matthew 6, verses 12 and 13. Part of that prayer is, and this is a, you know, a model for daily prayer, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. 
Jesus' model for prayer includes daily seeking of forgiveness and a continuous confrontation with sin. Those things are built into the model prayer. It wasn't something that was done way back you know, in 31 AD. And it's all done. And there's nothing more to be said. It's a daily need for each and every one of us to seek forgiveness and to confront sin. Jesus' model prayer. Christ's work is not done and over. And neither is yours. So, go before the Father in Jesus Christ's name and seek grace, seek mercy and forgiveness and ask for help in putting sin out, in resisting sin. Ask for help in putting righteousness in, you know, in following God's Spirit, which is in you. And you have Jesus' permission which was earned through hard, hard sacrifice to go straight to the Father, seeking all these things. And you and I, we need to do this. You have the living Christ at the Father's right hand advocating for you. Christ living in you. In addition to the removal of leaven from our lives for seven whole days, which we know, I, I know we've, we've covered it, I think, okay this year, is a picture of the removal of sin out of our lives. But in addition to that, we are to eat unleavened bread. The unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And this is a picture that Christ is living in us. He is alive. He is risen. He has ongoing work to do. And he is actively doing it. And he is doing it in you. Go to Romans 8 verse 9. Romans 8 verse 9. Which says this. You however are not in the realm of the flesh. But are in the realm of the spirit. There's something going on with you folks. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ. They're kind of the same thing aren't they? If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ. They do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, so the Spirit is also the presence of the Father, and if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. We need to follow up on the Passover. That's the proper response. We have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Those who are led by the presence of Christ in them, those who are led by the presence of the Father in them, the power of the Holy Spirit, those are the children of God. Go to 2 Corinthians 10. And verse 5. 
We demolish arguments and every pretense that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ and we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. We've got work to do. That is what these days picture for us. He said he would return because there's more to be done. Your confident expectation of resurrection glory, which you know, it should be in your mind, of being brought into the fullness of sonship in God's family is opened up to you through the death of Jesus Christ. We went through that together this Passover one more time. Because all that happened, it's possible for you to move on. And he said, before his death, he said he had to leave, but that he would return because there's more to be done. And we can only fulfill the meaning of these days of unleavened bread by putting out sin. Leaven, you know, it's important, but it's a, you know, it's a symbol. Reality is that we need to put sin out of our lives. We can only overcome sin because the living Christ is with us and within us. And we can only continue to receive forgiveness, that daily need for forgiveness, built into that model prayer. We can only continue to receive forgiveness and mercy and grace because he is there for us, working for us, interceding for us. The days of unleavened bread are a dramatic reminder of the role that we must play in the work of spiritual creation, which God is doing in us. So as I said, therefore, do the work. Do your part. And that is what these days picture. They picture more, obviously. But they're all about us doing our part. Following up on the Passover. Making it meaningful, as Paul said, therefore, because Christ is our Passover, therefore, let us keep the festival. Let's follow up on it. These days are a reminder as well that Christ, who is the first of the first fruits, is alive. And he has presented himself before the Father, accepted, so that more harvesting can be carried out, and it's being carried out now. And he is also actively engaged in helping us along the way. 